You know, I think everybody loves a good love story. And really, there's none better than the story of Maggie Carter. I mean, Maggie must have been some kind of woman. Five different men, five, pursued her hand in marriage. But every time Maggie walked the aisle, came to the altar, I mean, she'd panic. She'd get scared. She'd bolt. Maggie was known as the runaway bride. I mean, so few have ever been so pursued as Maggie Carpenter. I wonder what it felt like for Maggie, knowing that so many men desired her so much. In fact, to get a feel of what I'm talking about, watch the video screen as a segment from the movie. You know, every one of us desires to be pursued by someone who loves us for who we are. We come into this world uh, longing to be special to someone. And though it begins well as an infant, seeing the delight in your parents' eyes, uh, we're all destined for disappointment when it comes to relationships. No one is loved as deeply as they'd like to be loved. It's a rare person who is sought for who they are rather than what they do. I mean, when was the last time you had someone sit down with you uh, for the sole purpose of getting to know you more deeply, fully expecting to enjoy what they found there? I bet more people have climbed Mount Everest than have experienced real, genuine, passionate pursuit. I mean, we come into this world desiring to be known, but with a deep-seated fear that if we are known, we won't be loved. I mean, it's the makings of a romantic tragedy. But, But did you know those two elements come together in beautiful harmony at this time of year? To see what I'm talking about, turn with me to the last chapter of the book of Mark. Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Now, you need to know, in the previous chapter, we saw Jesus has been crucified and hurriedly placed in a burial tomb Friday afternoon. Now, it's here that Mark picks up the story. Now, when Sabbath had passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said to themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And they entered the tomb, and they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Now, as we read this account recorded by Mark, I think we're forced to conclude that the resurrection of Jesus Christ must be one of the most vicious, wicked, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon mankind. Or... It's the greatest love story in all of history. 
I mean, you think about it. Did you know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most controversial events in all of human history? Most controversial events. That's because what Jesus did is he cast down the gauntlet. He said, I will live a perfect life and die a gruesome death to pay for the things you've done wrong. And as proof that I can do that, I'm coming back for you. I'll rise from the dead in three days. Did you know he made that statement 15 different times throughout the Gospels? Now, if if you were going to be the founder of a worldwide religion, would you base the future of your enterprise on such a claim? I mean, hardly. Jesus' assertion to come back to for those he loves, I mean, it was so ludicrous, so absurd, so outlandish that those who knew him best didn't believe him. In fact, in the previous chapter, uh, we see a description of one of the darkest days in human history. I mean, Jesus was crucified. And as I mentioned, he was hurriedly placed in a tomb Friday afternoon before Sabbath began at sundown. You see, the Jews were not permitted to do any kind of work on the Sabbath. Uh, They couldn't buy, they couldn't sell, they couldn't barter and trade, no work whatsoever. Saturday was sacred. So when the sun set the next day at the end of Sabbath, what you have is three women. You've got Mary, Mary Magdalene, and Salome going to the marketplace to buy oils and spices in order to anoint Jesus' body. Now, the custom was to buy these oils and spices and then pour them over the body to counteract the effects of decay. The fact that they were willing to go and counter the body three days after death was remarkable in and of itself. But after shopping that evening, it was late, they decided to retire first, and so they waited till the next morning to approach the tomb. Now, the fact that they carried with them oils and spices meant that they expected to find a dead body in the tomb. You see, even though Jesus had declared it 15 times that he would rise from the dead, I want you to know these women did not expect the resurrection. In fact, I want you to notice their deepest concern was focused somewhere else. Look at verse 3. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? Now, now their concern about the stone was valid. The stone blocked the entire entrance to the tomb. It weighed about two tons. In fact, Mark tells us it was a very large stone. Archaeologists estimate that it would take anywhere between... 15 and 20 men to roll this stone out of the way. So how these three women were going to roll it is everyone is anyone's guess. But, but moving the stone was the least of their worries. They also were concerned about the soldiers. In fact, Matthew tells us that the religious leaders had requested that Roman soldiers be posted around the tomb lest the disciples sneak in and steal the body. Now, I find it amazing that even though Jesus' own people, his friends, didn't expect him to come back for them, 
some of Jesus' enemies expected he might. Now, now the picture you have in your mind that maybe it come from uh, childhood Bibles of a group of soldiers hanging around the entrance of a tomb in short miniskirts is ludicrous. You need to know these were Roman special forces, highly trained individuals. And in fact, historians revealed that one unit would be made up of 16 men, each man trained to protect two square yards of ground. All 16 men together could protect 32 square yards of ground against an entire invading army. You need to know these guys were killing machines. So there's no way they're getting in the tomb. These guys were to make sure no one entered that tomb. So there's the issue of the stone that's in the way, the soldiers that's in the way, and there's a third issue, the concern of the seal. Matthew goes on to tell us that the tomb was secured with a Roman seal. It was constructed of two pieces of leather crossed with clay patches with Roman seals on all four corners. Now, if broken, the seal carried the penalty of death. Now, you can see these women weren't getting into the tomb. There's no way it would have been impossible. But as we read, the historical record is clear. It reveals that when they arrived, they found the stone had already been rolled away from the door. But you need to know that the Greek text is very precise. The word intense used there means the stone was not just rolled away from the door. It was picked up and placed uphill away from the door. So you can imagine the seal was broken. And the guards were nowhere to be found. Now, what would you do in a situation like that? You stumbled on a crime scene. The police have not even arrived yet. Now, how many of you would stick your head in the tomb and look around? Any? Come on. This is audience participation. Okay. Any of you? Come on. Some of you would. Okay. We got, we got a few brave souls, you wouldn't be curious. Stick your head in, look around, see what was going on. Well, these are the risk takers in the audience. Now, how many of you would get as far away from that tomb as possible? Huh? This is audience participation. Anybody? Are you? We have a few of you. Okay. These are the guys who like to play it safe. How many of you would stand at a distance and observe what other people are doing to see what they'd do first. Huh? Oh, there you are. These are the people running for political office. Now, verse 5 tells us that Mary, Mary and Salome, they entered the tomb. And they found a man sitting there. I mean, but this was no ordinary man. Matthew tells us, that it was an angel, and Mark says the women were alarmed. The word literally means dumbfounded. In other words, they were standing there with their mouths wide open. Now, the angel speaks to the women. First thing he says is, don't be alarmed. In other words, shut your mouth. That's what it means. 
But he goes on, he says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen, he's not here. And Matthew tells us they found the grave clothes laid just as if the body had been evaporated through the cloth, totally undisturbed. Now, now the question is, what happened to the body? And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, he was resurrected. But did you know that was not the conclusion those closest to Jesus would come to? In fact, John, in the book that bears his name, tells us that Mary left the tomb and she ran to find the disciples in the upper room where they were hiding and praying. And even though this angel told Mary Jesus has risen, guess what she tells the disciples? Someone stole the body. Isn't that amazing? I mean, the idea that Jesus rose from the dead was such a dubious, implausible, inconceivable conclusion that those who knew Jesus best looked for other explanations. So the women didn't believe there would be a resurrection. But did you know the disciples didn't believe there'd be a resurrection either? I mean, look at the next verse, verse 9. Now, when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they didn't believe it either. So the angel tells Mary, Jesus rose from the dead. Mary runs and finds the disciples, tells them someone stole the body. And immediately Peter and John, along with Mary, they run back to the tomb. When they arrive, they peek in. Sure enough, the body is gone. Nothing is there. Now, Mary lingers after Peter and John leave. That's when Jesus appears to Mary. They talk for a few minutes. And then Mary leaves and goes back to find the disciples and to tell them that Jesus, that she had met Jesus alive. But the idea that Jesus had risen from the dead was so preposterous, the disciples wouldn't believe it either. But not only that, Luke in his gospel tells us there were two men that Sunday morning traveling back to their hometowns, having been in Jerusalem and observed Jesus' death. And along the way on the road to Emmaus, they're joined by a stranger. They begin to strike up a conversation. They tell the stranger what they had seen take place in Jerusalem about Jesus. They make the whole trip, and that evening as they sat down for dinner together, suddenly the two men recognized that the one stranger they had been talking to the whole time was actually Jesus. And when they recognize Him, Jesus disappears. These two men get up, leave their food on the table, and take off back to Jerusalem in the dead of night to go find the disciples. So when they find the disciples, they tell them what they have discovered. So what's the disciples' response? Well, look at verse 12. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. These are the two men on the road to Emmaus. And they went and told it to the rest, that's the disciples, but they did not believe them either. 
I mean, the thought of Jesus rising from the dead was so outside of everyone's realm of thinking, thinking that no, those who knew him best had a hard time believing it. But the historical record's clear. The tomb was empty. The body wasn't there. I mean, even Jesus' enemies conceded that point. So the question is, what happened to the body? Well, the reliability of Christianity really hangs in the balance of how you answer that question. And because of that, skeptics throughout the ages have tried to offer other explanations of what happened to the body. I mean, some have proposed that what happened is the disciples actually stole the body. But but it's hard to imagine that 11 guys, most of whom were fishermen, could overcome 16 special forces, Roman soldiers, overcome them, subdue them, go get the body, unwrap it from its burial cloth, its shroud, place it back in place as if it had never, ever been touched. I mean, it's a better chance that the National Football Championship was won by Xavier than this could happen. You do know Xavier didn't have a football team, right? That was supposed to be funny. Thank you. But, but think about it logically. If the disciples had stolen the body, then what they were teaching in the years to come, they knew was a lie. They knew they were communicating a lie. And one would hardly die for a lie. And yet, everyone except one died a martyr's death. You would think one of the other ten would have broken ranks and spilled the beans. But no one did. Some have suggested that Jesus' enemies must have stolen the body. But if the authorities had stolen the body, then why didn't they just produce the body? I mean, when the, the apostles began talking about Jesus rising from the dead, I mean, why didn't they go get the body, put it in a cart, and drive it around Jerusalem a number of times? I mean, if they had done that, it would have destroyed Christianity before it ever got started. But you see, the silence of the Jews speaks as loudly as the voice of the disciples. Some have suggested that the women must have gone to the wrong tomb. But, but if the women went to the wrong tomb, then... Peter and John must have gone to the wrong tomb, which means the shroud, the burial clothes were left in the wrong tomb, and the guards were guarding the wrong tomb, not to mention the angel was in the wrong tomb. I mean, it becomes a comedy of errors. And if they'd gone to the wrong tomb, all the authorities need to do is go to the right tomb, find the body, produce it, and it would have squelched Christianity before it ever began. Now, some have insinuated that, well, what happened is Jesus really didn't die. In other words, that dark, damp tomb must have revived him from his torturous ordeal of being beaten and crucified and pronounced dead. But, but if that were true, would his appearance instill confidence in his followers? I mean, would they look at Jesus and say, I want a resurrected body like that one? Hardly. I mean, they would have been horrified to find Jesus staggering out of the tomb. His appearance wouldn't have provided any kind of confidence in anyone. I mean, the only reasonable explanation 
that the tomb was empty is that something, something supernatural must have occurred. But what? What was it? Well, Dr. Simon Greenleaf, principal founder of uh, Harvard Law School and the author of a three-volume set called The Laws of Legal Evidence, uh, still used in our court of law today, was a skeptic of Christianity for years. In fact, he, he loved um, finding Christians in his law class, and he would just ridicule them. Well, one day, a group of students challenged Professor Greenstreet to take his three-volume set, The Laws of Legal Evidence, and use it uh, against the resurrection to see if it happened or not. Well, Dr. Greenstreet took him up on the challenge. And as a result, he wrote a book about it. And in the book, he said this, The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the best established facts of history. According to the rules of evidence administered in our courts of justice, even today. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is practical proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be, God. And if he is who he claimed to be, God, then he can do what he claims to do, and that is forgive sin, forgive our wrongdoing. Do you see the significance of that? We all come into this world longing to be known, but with a deep-seated fear that if we really are known, we won't be loved. But if Jesus is God, if He is who He claimed to be, then you already completely and thoroughly known. And if He can do what He claims He can do, forgive sin, then you are already completely and thoroughly loved, accepted for who you are. Not what you do and don't do. You see, the resurrection proves you're deeply loved, you're completely accepted, but that's not all it does. The resurrection of Jesus Christ also proves that you have been passionately pursued your entire life. You know, I wonder how Maggie felt knowing she was so desired by five men that they were willing to commit their life to her in marriage. I mean, she didn't need to be known as, as Maggie the runaway bride. She should have been known as Maggie the pursued or Maggie the sought after. But, but the pursuit of Maggie pales in comparison to the evidence of God's pursuit of you. Did you know the Bible says that you and I are God's beloved? In fact, that word beloved is used over 300 times uh, throughout the Bible, over half of those times describes God's affection toward us. The word beloved means to be esteemed, to be favored, to be found dear. It comes from a root that means to be accepted in spite of what you do. That's the way God loves you. And as a result, just like Maggie created a crisis in the lives of five men when she bolted from the altar, we've created a crisis as well. I mean, the gospel says that we didn't recognize our true love, so he launched the greatest campaign in all human history to get our attention. 
You and I were created for intimacy with God. And when we refused to recognize Him, He promised that He would come for us. So He conceived the most daring of plans. Under the cover of darkness, He snuck into our world. God became an infant. You see, Christmas, the incarnation, is God's way of moving in close so He could win our heart. And the resurrection is proof that you and I have been pursued in ways that makes the pursuit of Maggie Carpenter pale by comparison. I mean, look at verse 7 if you want to see God's pursuit. Notice what the angel said to the women. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that He is going before you into Galilee. There you will see Him as He said to you. I mean, do you see God's passionate pursuit in that verse? Notice the angel says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. You remember Peter? He was the one who denied Jesus three times. The last time we saw Peter, he was hiding in shame. He, He was weeping over what he had done. Peter doesn't feel like a follower of Christ, much less a disciple of Jesus's. Peter has just failed immensely. And yet in the midst of Peter's greatest failure, what do you see? God's passionate pursuit. God is pursuing Peter. In fact, John reveals that after the resurrection, uh, Jesus takes Peter aside and tells him three times, I want you to feed my sheep. Who? The one who had just denied him. I mean, I find it fascinating that God would be pursuing Peter like that. You see, no failure is too big. No derailment is too great to cause God to change His opinion about you. He loves you as you are. Not as you should be. Because none of us in this room are as we should be. Notice also his pursuit of the disciples. Remember, three times he sent to the disciples credible witnesses to his resurrection. Remember the first? It was Mary Magdalene. She went and told them that they saw, that she saw Jesus, and the scripture says they refused to believe. The disciples refused to believe. And then the two men on the road to Emmaus, they came all the way back to tell them they had seen Jesus, and the scripture says, and they did not believe them either. And so Jesus is forced to appear to the disciples. Look at verse 14. Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because he didn't believe those who had because because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Now notice that phrase. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. Now, that statement alone is evidence of God's passionate pursuit. Even in the midst of complete and utter unbelief, denial, failure, Jesus appears to the disciples. He confronts them, and then to everyone's surprise, He turns right around and immediately commissions them to join him in his worldwide enterprise. Look at the next verse. There's no pause. He said to them, Go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You see, the resurrection is proof that you and I have been loved well. I mean, it's one thing to be loved 
because of what we do. It's another thing to be loved in spite of what we do. The resurrection is proof of God's passionate pursuit when we're at our worst. Uh, When we've pursued other gods, other lovers, when we thumb our nose at God, He does not give up on you. You see, God's fierce intention, His reckless ambition is to come back from the dead because He's passionate about gaining a connection with you. In fact, I'd like to read you how one author describes God's passionate pursuit in our lives. Brent Curtis. Listen to what he says. Have you ever had to literally turn a lover over to a mortal enemy and allow her to find out for herself what his intentions toward her really were? Have you ever had to lie in bed knowing that she is believing his lies and was sleeping with him every night? Have you ever sat helplessly by in a parking lot while your enemy and his friends took turns taking advantage of your lover, even as you sat nearby, unable to win her heart enough so she would trust you to rescue her? Have you ever called this one that you loved for so long and asked her, If she was ready to come back to you only to have her say her heart was still captured by your enemy? Have you ever watched your lover's beauty slowly diminish and fade in a haze of alcohol, drugs, occult practices, and infant sacrifice until she is no longer recognizable in body and soul? Have you ever loved one so much that You even sent your only son to talk to her about your love for her, knowing full well he'd be killed by her. And in spite of knowing all of this, he's willing to do it because he loves her too and believes you were meant for one another. You see, God endured this and more because he refuses to stop pursuing you. No matter how far you stray, no matter what you do, He is waiting and wanting to draw you close. I mean, the message of Christmas is that you and I have been loved well. God has pursued us. He's pursued you from before time and will ultimately conquer death because He wants to draw you close to Him. You see, the birth of Jesus is evidence that you and I are loved well. It's the beginning, really, of the most fantastic love story. You know, and that story is depicted beautifully in that Christmas hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, God with us. I'm going to ask two of our own in the youth ministry to come forward, and they're going to sing that for you. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, James. Hopefully this Christmas season will be a time where you feel close to God, to Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. You know, if you came prepared to give, offering boxes are out in the hall on the left. 
If you have any questions about what's going on here at Horizon, drop by the hearth room, third door on the left. We'd love to put a name with a face. And if you hadn't picked up tickets for Christmas Eve service, I said New Year's Eve last night. There is no New Year's Eve service. Christmas Eve service. Uh, be sure and stop by the table down near the fireplace. Thank you for coming. Hopefully you'll see you back here Christmas Eve.